Defensive Humanity. This is Austerius Haas Miller. Today, I'm joined by Harrison Perusek. We've had a few technical difficulties over the course of this. So Harrison, please introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Harrison. I am a senior at Young Harris College, and I love doing outdoor activities, which is why I would like to discuss the topic of environmental ethics. Excellent. Harrison, Get us started. Uh, why are you interested in environmental ethics? What are some key points that you want to hit during this episode? Just just get us into it. Well, I've been fascinated by the question slash concept of, of is a thing right <clears throat> if, or is a thing right or wrong if we have a particular intention in mind? Mm-hmm. So for example, like in the environment, is it okay to set aside um, certain parts of the environment if we have good intentions in mind versus are we like owning that land? Mm-hmm. And that's really what I want to get at. Okay. Okay. This makes me think a lot of Aldo Leopold, the land. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is actually very interesting. And coincidental, because you haven't heard the episode that I've done with Sam Choi, because I recorded it yesterday. And it, well, I guess you could have. It premiered earlier today at 12, and we sort of talked about um, ownership of land and whether it's right or wrong, but we definitely didn't get into an environmental ethics. So this is a nice connection to our previous episode. Glad I could be of service. Of course, of course. So... Um, since I'm simply a moderator in the series of episodes for the, for the second half of season two of In Defense of Humanity, I'm going to let you take the floor, or I guess the mic, and I'll chime in whenever necessary. So just if you want to posit a question or if you have a phrase to say or anything, let's get going. Well, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this because I have yet to listen to that episode. And so Mm -hmm. I will after this, but with you being as well-versed in the field of ethics as you are, Mm -hmm. what do you think about setting aside land and that possibly diminishing its like intellectual value? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's a very interesting way to phrase the intellectual value of a piece of land. Okay, okay. So in my opinion, this is, once again, Jonathan Dancy, an ethicist, once said, I am at this moment an ethicist. It's not my job to tell you what's right or wrong, just to tell you what's necessary and unnecessary. So in that, I would say that ownership of land is unnecessary. And people will probably what? But I'm a libertarian. I want everything. That's okay. We're gonna we're gonna analyze that situation as well. Um, partly because there are some instances we specifically talked about um, earlier today. Bunkers. 
So with most bunker systems, which are on land, usually sparsely populated land like desert, um, bunkers are owned for leases of 99 year periods. So if something happens within 99 years, your 99 year lease, you or your family member, uh, whoever is surviving, gets to stay in the bunker. Obviously, if a nuclear cataclysm happens, that 99 year lease is turned into an eternal lease. So you technically own the bunker, but it's logical in that we are only able to have the property or the bunker for 99 years because logically thinking I'm not living after I'm old enough to buy a bunker 99 more years. Probably not. Would you say? I would say that it makes sense that like on paper, you do own that but it's impossible to own the land that that's right. you come from. That's right. That's right. And which is why um, a lot of cultures around the world, non uh, Eurocentric cultures um, have a bit of a problem with people coming to a place, planting a flag in the soil and saying, this is mine. This is ours. Now um, I'm sure Aldo Leopold, even Aldo Leopold and even Nussbaum would agree with this. But to say that one, just because I found it first with quotes, it's mine, is sententially incorrect. Um, Not even to say that it's unsound, but it's incorrect in that you have no guarantee that you are the first human being to walk on this land, less alone the other sentient beings who've walked on the land. They don't claim to own it either. So why does your claim have legitimacy? if they don't uh, value your system of authority as legitimate, then you have no standing. So to the Diné people in Navajo Nation, to them, they live in Navajo Nation, sure. But the land, even outside of it, used to be where their ancestors roamed, not in the old way of thinking, not the old way, but in their previous ways of thinking before they were um, indoctrinated. Uh, with this current mode of thinking, some of the ancestors would have said, we live here. This is not technically ours, but it most certainly is not yours. And you're coming here and taking what we use freely and let others use freely um, just because you want it. Because I, in my opinion, I feel a lot of Westerners hold property just to say they held property or to increase their value. Um, I really want to hear your insights on this. Sure. Well, it gets into the issue of humans need land to live and a certain Mm -hmm. amount of land. Yes. And I think you could argue that so do animals Mm -hmm. and certain animals such as like, you know, big cats that have vast territories. Mm hmm. That they definitely own that land in terms relative to other tigers, lions, bears, oh my, etc. Mm-hmm. But I everything see. else is good. Uh, yes, yeah. No, no, I, I hear you. I want you to finish your statement before I uh, jump in. And other animals are able to come and go through that territory as they please mm-hmm. as long as they're not you know, disrupting the order of the the alpha's life 
So mm-hmm. human, some humans kind of take that same thought process and apply it to their own lives where everything is able to come and go as they please. We're all just part of this big community. However, I happen to be the main steward of this swath of land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, to me, this, this analogy with the big cat, in my mind, the big cat does not own the land. Not at all. The big cat is the one who is more capable at the time of defending that property, if to use the word, um, at any given moment. That doesn't mean ownership. That to me is a, a lease of, of aggression, right? As soon That's as true. another as soon as another cat comes, then it's it's over. This this assumed ownership is over. Indeed. So is this still ownership? Because in in the Western sense of ownership, or in the I guess Anglo-American sense of ownership, um, let's say Euro-American. Let's just say American. In the American sense of ownership, I have land, and it is even defended by my government. Now they don't think of eminent domain in the moment. But that does indeed exist as well. So in the moment, I own this land and it is by my accord that it is passed down in perpetuity to my descendants as well. So I own this land forever. This whole uh, piece of land in some states, this land all the way down to the core. Yeah. Right. So that that to me is this this differs in the ownership. So what I'm hearing from you is that the big cat owns the land and I will not refute that. Right. The big cat has its territory and it can defend it. Therefore, that land belongs to this this creature, this sentient being. However, in the human sense, whenever humans purchase land, they're making a, a treatise. Um, they get a deed that says this belongs to you and yours, whoever you deem so, for all time. The big cat does not have this kind of accord with uh, other animals. Because once the big cat dies, the territory is up for grabs or is beaten off by another um, animal. Indeed. But that... Uh... The, the deed concept that you just introduced, mm-hmm. that only applies insofar as a human construct and doesn't apply That's right. elsewhere. That's right. And, and owning land forever is not a, um, a non-human concept as far as we know. There's another and... thing that I wanted to... What were you saying? Yeah, I was just going to say, also, the big cat, once again, as far as we know, does not have a system of land ethics, according to it. He's not, you know, decide, um, hey, let me steward these animals in here. Let me breed them, right? The animals come on. It's within the territorial lines 
the the big cat does not value these lines. We observe these lines, these territories, but the big cat never has in its mind, I can't leave these confines because they do it quite often. And then as researchers, we look at them and we're like, oh, its territory is actually 300 miles instead of 250. But in fact, the the cat's just roaming, uh, looking for food. Indeed. So that is land ownership as far as humans go. Mm-hmm. What about when humans own certain sections of land but don't live on it? Okay, okay, okay. So this is a, a big thing that another guest of the podcast, Samuel Pham and I, um, and even Sam Choi yesterday, we discussed this um, uh, a little process called speculation in which humans buy uh, land, in some instances buy land that is that is outside of a, of a high real estate price area. So it's not in a marketable area and they wait for the marketable area to expand out to that property. So they buy it for pennies on the dollar and then sell it, uh, sell the land quadruple, sometimes 16 fold what they bought it for. Um, this is sometimes what, why people buy land. Other times people inherit land from a family member and they choose not to live on it but they don't want to sell it from sentiment. Uh, this to me is kind of illogical because if you're not utilizing the land that someone else could utilize it or it could be ceded to an organization that will use the land uh, efficiently. But that's just my, my thoughts. What are yours? I think you're right. But... It depends on what that land is being used for as so far as humans are using it. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're using it for good things such as like gardening, farming, etc. versus bad things like mining, oil drilling, environmentally destructive practices, mm-hmm. then okay. not okay. Okay, so so my question here, since this is a discussion of ethics, who decides what's good and bad? Because if I come through as a deontologist, I would say which one is dutiful and which is not. None of those practices that you deemed good or bad are dutiful to the land. None of them. Mm-hmm. Farming is quite utilitarian. Uh, cultivating the crops on the land, that's quite utilitarian. Damaging the environment is unnecessary. So none of these things are dutifully done. So as a deontologist, I, if I am one, then none of these things are good nor bad. They're unnecessary. Perhaps as a utilitarian, I could say good or bad, but is that how we determine land ethic? Because if so, then the benefit of uh, the Black Hills or Death Valley as a fracking site far outweigh the benefit of cultural astute seeing as how more people utilitarian would benefit from the potential crude oil extracted from these land swaths 
whereas other people find it culturally important to them, profit in our capitalist slash mercantilist society um, is far more valuable in a transactional utilitarian sense. So how are we even determining what is ethical for land rights? It's only ethical if it's recognized by humans, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, but indigenous populations who value land in and of itself because um, it's there, that is ethical, right? These these are moral constructs. Right now we're talking about morality, which is you're saying human, but I'm hearing moral per individual culture because ethics in the sense of land must be able to be universalized within uh, set regimes, within set borders, let's say the United States. But people, even you and I have differences on how we interpret land rights. So first we need to establish um, an agreed upon ethical framework before we can even fully discuss this topic. Indeed, indeed. So I say, posit um, an ethical framework for us, and I will follow it. I may not agree with it, but then we can follow it, and then we can get to get deeper into these land rights, these issues, and then we can move on to other environmental issues, which I'm sure you're passionate about as well. To a certain extent, yes. So the posit that you described that I'd like to lay out <clears throat> mm-hmm. is this the, the concept of like national parks or okay. nature preserves setting aside land mm-hmm. for the, the lack of human development mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that good or bad is that good or bad see I would say that even our, even the necessity of national parks is inherently bad because that means that as a society, we have proven that we have a tendency of destroying that which is already there to the point where we need to specifically say these are off limits. So we take and take so much to the, the, the farthest extent to where our legitimate form of government has to say no more. See, that that is a problem, Indeed. right? Uh, the, the national park could be considered, yeah, that's a good thing. We're protecting it. But this is only a Band-Aid. This is only a, um, a Tylenol for liver cirrhosis. It'll stop the pain, but it doesn't stop the disease. So if we increased... Nat the the presence of natural spaces to a greater mm-hmm. percentage of a civilized space, so to speak, would that be good or bad? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would consider that good. See, now now we're getting somewhere. Um, however, I'm still using we're using the terms good or bad, and I don't as as someone who who favors. Um, the ontology on route to moral particularism, um, but I'm open to any school of thought. I am. 
I do not know if we're considering the same things good or bad. I'm considering things good for the benefit of the world. But as an ethical framework, all known ethical frameworks are established by humans. So I wonder if yours is, is it good for the society, for the individual, or for the world itself? I think it would be good has two meanings. It's either good for the world, like what you're talking about, or good for humans Mm -hmm. and the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Because those are the okay. best solutions, okay. ultimately. Okay. Okay, interesting. I, I read about this in um, do, we have, do We Have a Duty to Protect the Environment for Our Descendants. There was a, was a short essay on that I read for an environmental ethics class a um, long time ago. Okay, okay. So we've established our moral framework uh, to potential moral frameworks and we'll talk about them we'll say morally good one for just the world and morally good two for both humans and the world are you okay yes sir okay now that we have established this um let's go back in what was your previous question if um the the presence of a natural space or protected natural mm-hmm. space, I should say, outweighs the acreage or space of a civilized, urbanized, human-dominated mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Is that good or bad? Ah, ah, so I would say morally good too, human and for the environment itself. Mm-hmm. As an example, I posit Bhutan, which we talked about, in the last podcast, if everyone would like to go and listen to it, if they're listening to this and hum- somehow skip the last one, um, Bhutan has within their constitution, among other progressive modes, they are a net carbon sink, meaning they absorb more carbon from the surrounding environment than they add to the environment. Additionally, in the constitution, I think it's at least 60% of their country must remain a natural space, must remain forested. So if their cities are going to expand, then they have to get more efficient. They either have to go up, like many cities do, or go down underground. But they cannot disturb the, the portion that the Constitution has deemed necessary for Bhutan to remain Bhutan. This protects their their environment this protects the environment of others and it helps slows uh, climate change as bhutan is the gateway into many other nations in southeast asia that's interesting because i'm looking at the population for bhutan right now and they're they're not a very big mm-hmm. country it's only about three-fourths of a million people Mm-hmm. What happens when that percentage, or when that population goes up? But oh, see, um, I I ask you to look at the population uh, metrics for the last hundred years to see how much the population has increased in comparison to other industrialized nations, because I can almost guarantee that the population growth is slower because they are. Um, 
as a society because they're so focused on preserving that land that 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 collectivist culture to help the benefit of themselves and the groups around them and the world i can almost guarantee that their population growth is slower because they're a lot less fast paced um about movements and having children and having so many children because i feel that having a lot of children sometimes has to do with religion but in many cases it has to do with a display of wealth i have the ability to care for six children and you do not so i am yeah well what happens to the ethic when it's completely necessary to expand Mm -hmm. the human dominated world into the natural world what happens to it i don't think it changes i think once the framework is established it can't change now if i was a moral particularist i could say it it does change a bit but if i were a consequentialist let's say hmm, a relativist if i'm relativist this is um the individuals who say everyone has a right to their own opinion you're familiar with these yes sir um and then you say that, but it is the argument is invalid and unsound because to say that everyone has a right to their own opinion is saying that the individual who says, I'm a universalist, I believe there's only one right, you as a moral relativist are saying everyone has a right to their own opinion, including the universalist who says only one opinion is valid. Therefore, you um this body you destroy your own framework as a relativist so going with that i would say that the land ethic can't change because um our environment can't be relatively looked upon that this is why we've messed up so much people claiming one patch of land like america this is our land we can do with it as we please um is damaging because we live in a biosphere. Sure, that individual land could have a different um, biologic functions, different chemical functions, different life forms on it, but they're connected in the grand scheme of thing to everything. If I have acid rain in Oregon, eventually that acid rain will move to Washington, to California, because there's not a bubble surrounding this, um, this human-created border. You know, there are a lot of land borders. So perhaps if Bhutan's like, hey, we're a cart, uh, a net carbon sink, we can absorb um, the carbon from North India, that they can be slightly more isolated because they have the Himalayas, which are natural borders, which do change air currents. But for the majority of pieces of land, we can't say individually, this is good for this individual piece of land because they're all connected. Indeed. You're absolutely right. Because if I live on one piece of property, let's say in Athens, Georgia, and my neighbor lives on another piece of property and he chooses to uh, pour acid on his lawn for some reason, whenever the rain comes, my lawn um, also has acid on it. Partly my fault for 
joining the um, colonial system of growing lawns to prove that I have enough money to water grass, but also his fault because he said, well, I can do what I please with my land without understanding that everything is connected. That that goes a lot with uh, Leopold's land ethic, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Absolutely. humans that advocate for um, like everyone to be on the same level in terms of the environment so we all live in the same types of houses? There's not really much of a class, which, which would be yeah, humans yeah, like all for it. base level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I am a minimalist. Indeed. And I do not, I I love aesthetic. I I love design, photography. But whenever it comes to my home, I prefer everything to be quite bland, quite drab. So it doesn't give me distractions whenever I am doing aesthetic things. I don't think necessarily people should have the same exact house because then it creates problems. But equally so, if this is a problem with the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, having all of the workers have the same exact property is fine because they have nothing to envy except the bourgeoisie has a larger property because they are the commanders. Everyone is equal, but you need someone to enforce this. Like with the short story, Harrison Bergeron, uh, you need that, that inspector general to enforce order, to enforce equality, equity. Thus, that inspector general is of higher value and most likely has a better house. So we fight amongst ourselves to achieve um, a point that is a little bit closer to them. So I start painting my house, same exact house, but now a different color, similar to the, the bourgeoisie. I start um, adding extensions to my house to make it a little bit bigger than everyone else. Now other people envy me. Envy is the enemy of humans because we without anything to compare ourselves to we are usually just fine we're fine but once we have a comparison now we have to meet and exceed the individual who we perceive as having something more than us that's a lot to take in I'm still digesting it. Mm -hmm. So to get better into your question, do I think that individuals who, who believe we should have like similar ways of living, similar um, ties to the land, I think it could work. I don't think it works for everyone because uh, a lot of people um, do not have the same values. Um, I suppose if we started off our society this way, then we would all have very similar values. But there are also there are always outliers, and I feel in a in a collectivist society such as this, the outliers are purged. And I hate to say it, but I would be purged. So I like I like the idea, but then once people who think like us respect the land are the majority, what happens whenever a guy uh, goes like, hey, uh, I want to do something a little different. Then you have that mob mentality, Salem witch trials. 
worst worst of all, Holodomor, um, Shoah, uh, yeah, yeah, the the Rwandan genocide. All of these happen because individuals uh, perceive others as different. Perhaps gaining something from that difference, finding it and culling it out. So I think it could cause more problems. Perhaps we will save the environment, but we'll lose ourselves in the process. Yeah, so you're kind of saying that we shouldn't consider ourselves different from the environment. We should consider ourselves part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the, the most anthropocentric thing to happen to human beings. Living in the Anthropocene, right after the Holocene, is the fact that we can manipulate our environment and we love to say that we're so advanced. Look, we can change weather patterns, but we refuse to accept that climate change is also our fault. That if we can do things on purpose, there's no way we can do things on accident. You're absolutely right. So I, it's mm, mm, a lot. It's a lot. Indeed. I don't think we're ever going to be able to reach a concrete anthropocentric versus ecocentric universalist answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I could, I could establish a code of ethics. I could establish land rulings and whatnot, but no one will listen to me. And if everyone listens to me, there'll always be one outlier who will seed a bit of doubt, which is necessary because I, it would be a tragedy. We wouldn't be, who we think we are, humans, so different, the pace setters for the world, if everyone thought the same. We would be equals in every sense of the term, meaning that we'd all be limited to a standard. So if anyone excelled, they would be destroyed. If anyone underperformed, they would be destroyed. We would all be neutral. That reminds me that of something that I read for one of my classes this past semester which said that, let me pull it up real quick. Okay. I like that you're bringing in external uh, data. It's one of my many talents. Um, Dramas such as Endgame or Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, or on the musical scene, the appearance of punk rock are clear signs of a culture deep in trouble. We are at once the most individualized and independent and freewheeling country, culture, sorry, in history. At the same time, it seems the least comfortable with our individuality. So what this alludes to, that was from um, uh, an article written by F. Earl Fox from the the Journal of Experiential Education. And that alludes to that we cannot have a working society if there are not outliers in every sense of the word and in every culture. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Without outliers, we, Galileo would say, oh, you know what? I'm wrong. Indeed. We don't progress in astronomy. Newton would say, you know what? God's doing it. We don't progress in physics. And though some of these people have been disproven, they started the race that others finished. And, we still haven't finished. So without these outliers, right? People try to conform. People say, oh, you have a useless major. 
why are you studying the outdoors? That's pointless. But if if people didn't specifically study the outdoors, we wouldn't have people like Aldo Leopold. We wouldn't have people like Ansel Adams. We we would have people who we now respect as philosophers and photographers. They would have said, okay, I'll go work in an office. You're right. And then we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation. More so, we wouldn't have the the scientists and explorers in the early 30s and 40s who discovered lead in the ice shelf and we would still be using leaded gasoline. Many of us would probably not even be alive if humans survived at all because we would be using leaded gasoline everywhere and we would destroy our um, much of our society. In other words, support the arts? Yeah. STEAM education, science, technology, engineering, arts, math. I think it should be a little bit broader than that, maybe. But yes, you, you're getting you're getting good stuff there, man. How do we how do we get broader than STEAM? I think those are the only. Well, categories. the arts encompasses I mean, yeah, so much of education in school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everything can be looked at as an art, even philosophy. That's true. But that's why we have bachelors of arts, bachelors of science, bachelors of engineering, bachelors of uh, business administration. So I'm just I'm just thinking to the the current the current collegiate system, university system in America with the different forms of undergraduate degrees. So I guess the point of this podcast would be that there is a right answer for the environment, but there is no necessarily right answer for the humans that live on it. That's right. That's right. That's right. I was, I was a little worried about where you're going to go with that, but I do agree. There is a way for us to handle the environment. It's not to destroy it. Um, Whether or not humans can help in that or if we should just leave, that's up to another person or another episode of the podcast to determine. Um, But I suppose saying that that's for someone else to decide is me just sidestepping it and everyone can do that so no one ever answers the question. Indeed. So, who knows? That's why we discussed we're here in defense of humanity. Yeah, yeah. So let's go. Let's let's dive a little deeper. Let's say, yeah. Let's dive a little. All deeper. right. What else? What else do you have? For I was us? pretty much all that I had on my mind for right now. Hmm. Let's uh, let's go to the All ocean. Right. We've talked about land ethic. Let's talk about water rights. In terms of like yes, owning uh, specifically like the ocean or owning like drinking water. Mm-hmm. Not owning ocean, but owning the right okay. to have clean water. Many people pay for bottled water because they have no choice because their tap water is unclean. Um, it's how unethical. do you feel about that? On all accounts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I'm thinking specifically of Flint, Michigan, which is still having a little bit of trouble with their their water purity. Um, who do you think is responsible for this? Is is this the responsibility of the community who fight with words and sometimes with actions to get these things to change? Or is it the fault of the representatives? But if it is the fault of the representatives, once again, is it the fault of the community who elected them? But I say specifically in places like Flint, which is predominantly minority, these places are gerrymandered in a way so where a large majority of that minority is included in one zone. So they only have one um, one voting um, right, right? Like one voting platform, whereas the other communities of upper middle class and upper class individuals are split into separate zones. I think of Atlanta, like you have all of North Atlanta, you have all of South Atlanta, then you have Buckhead, Avondale, um, and then several other uh, Druid Hills, which is getting into Decatur, but close enough. You have all these other districting zones in Metro Atlanta, which are predominantly upper class. But whenever you get to the minority classes, uh, the minor- the lower classes, we have um, larger, gerrymandered, funny-shaped um, regions for election. So I think, is this, since we're still talking about land rights, water rights, who's to blame for this? Because even if they vote all fully, the minorities are gerrymandered in so that they their vote only counts once. Whereas if everyone from the other districts agree, their votes even if they're the same population, can count for up to three times more. So if you'll follow my extended broken chain of logic here. Okay. It it ultimately is the fault of all humans in the region because it kind of acts on a cyclical reasoning cycle because the people... Mm -hmm way back when elected certain officials who rigged the system that way because they were trying to use it for their own selfish gain. Mm -hmm. But then the people out of ignorance or out of deference and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Preference, sorry, to that particular official, Mm -hmm. they, they kept electing them. And then so that's putting it back on the people as well as the politicians. And then that cycle just repeats itself. And here we are now where politicians are acting like it's not their fault and that it's just the world sieging and destructing itself. When in actuality, they're all wrong. Mm. Okay, okay. So you're saying others are to blame. How do we how do we ameliorate this issue then? We can't force re-gerrymandering because if we right, if we're following the same gerrymandered principle, we can't elect it out because we still have a limited vote if we're gerrymandered. That's why it needs to come first from the people that get the attention of politics or politicians, like what we just saw with the mm-hmm. Ahmad Arbery case. 
Yes, yes, yes. But that that included the the majority, who in in the opinion of many, right? There are instances in which upper class people join lower class people in order to show um, solidarity. So in future instances, those minority groups do not uh, point fingers at the specific upper class people who showed solidarity in another moment. So it's a way of protecting one's ass in the future. Sounds kind of like abolitionism during the Civil War. So, Yes, quite similar. So, so in in this event, right? They they help. This is this is um, this is a trope often passed off by by apologists on social media, Black Twitter, if you're familiar with that, where they help us whenever it suits them, whenever it gets us notoriety. But whenever we really need help, they they're nowhere to be seen. They don't fight against us, but they don't side with us. So that's the problem, right? So they both gain from helping with Ahmad Arbery, but also whenever the time comes to redistrict places, they have nothing to gain from districting in a way that puts the power in the minority who may be swayed with the simple killing of a minority. Right. That's that's how it's seen by some. Well, we would love to give them power. You know, they're nice guys and they're nice. They're nice people and everything. But if if one of their kids gets shot, then they're voting against us. Do you think that this principle of giving power back to minorities could be zoomed out a little bit to Mm -hmm. giving power Mm -hmm. back to the environment? Yeah, yeah. But but what? This this brings us back to both environment and people right now, because I think specifically of indigenous populations of the world. Um, and I say indigenous populations of the world, because this is whenever a colonizing force comes in, takes away something from people who the first people groups who are living there and then offers it back like a token. Oh, we took everything here, but now you can have Navajo Nation back. It's enough space for you. Well, sure, if you dropped our population down 70%, of course, there's enough space for us now because you wiped out um, a majority of our people. So giving back minorities the, these rights is, is inherently, inherently disrespectful, inherently prejudiced, and inherently uh, colonial to say that, sure, we took everything from you, but even though we have all the power, we're willing to give you some. That means if you're willing to give us this, you know fully well that you have far more than what you're giving us. Because you don't, um, it's like the, it's like the socks, right? There, there are a few companies that make socks. People buy nice socks and they say, these aren't the socks that you buy. These are the socks we send to Kenya. So you buy the nice socks and they send plain black socks to Kenya. You know, similar similar socks, but distinctly different and less costly. So to think that I am um, getting these rights for free um, because someone gave them to me 
seems to me inherently disrespectful. I don't know. How do you feel? I think I think it's pretty much the same. Kind of like when, you know, suffrage came around and women were, we deserve the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you deserve the right to vote, but mm-hmm. it was taken away from you in the first place by people that set up the system. <laughs> so everyone had the right to vote in the beginning. But because we applied this framework, everyone yeah. got put into sections and some of them were not allowed to vote, for example. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is like voting disenfranchisement as well. And this also links us back. Voting disenfranchisement leads to environmental racism, right? So poor communities are more likely to have factories constructed around them that put um, detrimental chemicals into the environment, into the atmosphere. I think specifically of near uh, near Athens, Georgia, there's a biomass plant that has been constructed as well as one in Greenville. And they're constructed around poor, um, predominantly white communities, which are below the poverty line why because these people have to work all the time people say oh you could have voted for us not to come here but no because the people who are also included in these um elections are upper class people who vote to have it moved in poorer communities who have the privilege to be able to not go to work that day to vote Whereas the people who are poor, who don't want it there, have no choice but to go to work every single day. Elections happen um, at 2 p.m., let's say. It's impossible for a majority of them to get to to get there. That's, that sounds a lot like the, uh, the not-in-my-backyard movement, where all these environmental, pro-environmental causes and movements are totally fine, but I don't want to see them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, yeah, this not in my backyard movement um, that you've brought up is a very good example of this. So I drive by this biomass plant and it's not near me, but I just think the the people who this affects are not the people who voted for this to be here. The people who are upper class, but still included in the districts of a zone. Um are the ones who voted for this to not be in their backyard. So they're, they're the rich people who say, ah, put it over there. If they don't want it there, they'll vote against it, knowing full well that these people don't have the chance to vote against it. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think this also includes water. Because then we can move back to the original assumption, or I guess the secondary assumption, that land rights are the same as water rights. Um, so not necessarily that we we have the right to own the water, but to the fact that we have the right to have access to clean water. So these biomass plants are also dumping into water, which uh, run runs off into water sources that can be purified for um, detritus and, and viruses and bacterium, but not necessarily from uh, like cadmium or zinc, some heavy metals just get through. And then it ends up in us and then 
we die. Then there are Netflix documentaries and people go like, oh, that's bad. While drinking their pure water on their high castle. Have you ever experienced the the downside of these types of movements? Like, has this ever happened to you? Oh, um, do you mean like uh, like water impurities yeah. for me? Sure, that can be an example. Yeah, yeah. So, like, fifteen minutes from me, uh, there is a biomass facility which had has not yet opened, but actually, I think it did open. It did open. Sam Fam and I were discussing it, but it's a quite large. I don't think it's close enough to directly affect me within the next year, but given enough time, it will expand, and it is producing quite a lot of smog. And the house that is right beside it, who the owners probably refuse to sell, um, is covered in a grayish patina. And I believe it's from the, the biomass facility because they're only supposed to burn like wood, you know, things that are organic that could be uh, composted. But they, they burn it to, to boil water to produce steam, which uh, is like a power plant. Um, they're also burning uh, railroad ties and uh, telephone poles, which have tar in them, which is a carcinogen. Um, so this is causing problems and they claim that they're not doing this but obviously um, in small towns, small town USA especially Georgia um, a commissioner comes by you wave 10 grand in his face he'll take it He's he's got truck payments to make he'll take it indeed and then it continues it continues so have you had any um, experience with this? Not necessarily. I mean, like everyone else, that is it within my economic class, which would be lower middle-ish all the time, like mm-hmm. a little water impurities and power goes out, that type of stuff. I'm very privileged in that regard. Absolutely. 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 I completely understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, well, we understand that a lot of people are affected by the actions of people who will never be affected. So thinking of fracking, um, individuals who live near these zones don't make the decisions. People who have far more wealth, who never have to um, encounter the 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 problems that come from the procedures are making these decisions. So I say, do they have a right because they own the land according to the land, the laws of the land? Do they have a right to do this? That was a really big problem in Montana several years ago, where mining companies would mm-hmm. uh, do their thing and mine everyone everything out of the ground. But then declare bankruptcy right as all the mm-hmm. minerals were exhausted, so that way they didn't have to clean it up at all. Ah, that is um, that 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 does sound quite it's happening familiar. everywhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is that. Well, that definitely sounds like a problem. So they can just declare bankruptcy once they're finished getting what they want. And so is it our responsibility, meaning all humans and all people Mm -hmm. who live around there to clean it up? Or is it the company, the people who did it? Or is it the government who legally owns the land? Mm. Mm. So, oh, that's that's deep. Okay, so so I I believe the company. Wait, wait, wait. So the government buys out this land, right? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, okay. So then it's governmental responsibility. I would say it's the government's fault for buying the land, knowing full well what these companies do. But obviously, they have congressmen and and representatives Indeed. in their back pocket. So um, it's it's the least that could be expected. So with this coronavirus stuff, to have it be a more updated example. Uh, whose responsibility yes. is it to wipe this virus off the face of the earth? Like, hopefully, is going to happen, but it probably won't. I so I think that is a a duel, a bi a bipartite to not mis misconstrue bipartisan, but both us as individuals as well as the government who we claim is legitimate. Um. So we have a duty, social distancing, to remove ourselves from situations that would incur the spread of this disease. However, it is also our government's responsibility to ensure that we have the means to do so. By means to do so, I mean guaranteeing that we do not have to go to um, work to put ourselves at risk. And also giving us correct information. So the government are... Absolutely, absolutely. I would prefer that um, our fair leader not tell me to drink bleach. However, I do not have that right as an American. Um, So I say... I say it is it is interesting to see our neighbor up north who is I think currently giving twelve hundred dollars per month until August. And if the virus is still um occurring in August, then they will extend it until the next fiscal year. Yes. Um yeah, so a friend from Canada told me about this. Yeah. So we don't have that. We don't we we had a one-off payment a lump sum $1200 and now expected to just survive. Just survive. Many companies are not reopening. Uh, they can take the small business loan which is completely forgivable. But if you work for who knows, let's say let's say Zaxby's well, I guess it's actually open. But if you work for a large gym conglomerate, um, those are not small businesses. But they're also not going to pay you 
while you're not there. So you're just not making any money. You're not being able to pay bills. Your car note, if you Indeed. have one, you're just unable to do anything. And uh, then they will most likely, after all this is over, ask if you would like to come back. Now, should you come back? That That is a place to work. Or should you, in the meantime, be looking for a better place to work that respects you and gives you uh, money while you're in a time of need? Because they know you're you're a good employee, so it's easy enough. This is like having a having a, a another individual on the line, so to speak, in the words of Austin Watson. Um, telling a another individual that oh, I'm not available right now, and then they get sad, but maybe later. So now they always have, like they don't know they they can't go out in search of an, another person to fall in love with because they're waiting for you they're waiting on your world to change in the words of john legend waiting for the world to change you know but in fact it's like slow dancing in a burning room i'm going to stop using song lyrics however although the point of the matter is many companies are doing that they're furloughing people unpaid leave and then they expect these individuals to come back after um, and many will because they have no other jobs. They have nothing to pay for. But you have to think now these individuals who have not made At least money for what? Two months? Three months now? coming up. Three months? Two, two. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming up on three months. They expect these people to be able to drive to work every day for two weeks before they receive their first menial paycheck. This is insane to me. Indeed. So I say to reconnect this to environmental ethics, I say our entire form of mixed capitalism, mixed economy is is um, is a travesty in and of itself. So you're saying that we should base the economy and the human design for the advancement of all humans, not just a few humans, for the good of the environment. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's pretty much all I had. Um, Harrison, that's everything. That's everything. Well, um, you you have nothing else you want to talk about. Not at the moment. Okay, perfect. Well, this is perhaps the first In Defense of Humanity episode, which is actually quite close to one hour, which was the original intent of the show. Um, Harrison, I do thank you for coming on the show. I do appreciate you being here. Um, thank you for bringing new ideas to us so we could talk about land, the economy, and probably get arrested for treason. Um, Keeps it interesting. It does. It does. So I'd like to thank you. And if you ever have any free time during this uh, global lockdown that we're in, uh, please shoot me another message and I'll bring you right back on the show. Maybe one day we can meet up in person and do it um, if this ever ends. But if not, then remember, everyone, this indefense humanity. Uh, goodbye. goodbye. Thank you.